Is it okay so, if I have my coffee? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Hello and welcome to the Prolongevity podcast. My name is Graham Phillips, the founder of Prolongevity. And welcome also to this, the final episode, the full and final episode with Professor Robert Lustig. We discuss absolutely everything from diabetes, metabolic health, mental health, and what we both agree is a need for regulation of the food industry. We really hope you've enjoyed this fantastic episode and please do comment below and let us know what you thought of it. I think you need very little introduction and I'm not gonna do one of these long intros because to be honest, uh, we'd have to spend an hour on the intro, which I, I guess isn't isn't the necessarily the most productive thing. So I'm just going to uh, yeah, briefly. I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm not interested in hearing about myself. That's exactly. So all I'm going to say is that uh, you're a pediatric endocrinologist, and you're extremely highly in, uh, respected in my world. And my world is the world of eat real food, let thy food buy their medicine, and let thy medicine be thy food. And uh, as is well known, you're the author of several different books. Uh, we're here to talk today, particularly about metabolical. But in, on, but in addition to having written many books, you've written numerous scientific papers. And I think the point about you, Robert, is that everything you say is based in science, based in evidence and based in clinical practice. And I think that's pretty unique in, in our world. So we are honoured and delighted to have you with us. Well, thank you, Graham. But to be honest with you, I don't know why that's so unique. Um, you know, that's what it's supposed to be about. You know, and the funny part is the science works. And, you know, I think people know that, or at least some people know that. But, you know, we've learned a lot about social media lately. But it, it, some people call it anti-social media. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, I'm very anti-social media. You know, I mean, basically, I let the science do the talking. Yeah. I think it's the way that you're able to articulate this complex science, which kind of is a lovely segue, actually, because I first came across you because of that incredible YouTube, uh, yeah. Sugar, the, Sugar the Bitter Truth. Yeah, it's nice. I didn't, I mean, it's now, uh, what, 12 years old. Yeah. Um, I didn't think my mother would watch that, never mind 14 million people. I don't get it. I still I don't get it. I think you're underestimating. The last time I looked, it was 15 million. <laughs> no, I don't think, I, well, whatever. It, it's a, <laughs> but uh, I, I just think, it, I mean, g given the subject matter, which is a fairly abstruse 90 minute discourse on the metabolism of a very specific sugar. Right. What's the background to that video and why do you think it's become the cult that it has? I mean, I came across it out of the blue and I was spellbound for 90 minutes. I have no idea why. And I must have watched it half a dozen times. Well, I have no idea why either, because that was about my worst uh, presentation ever. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that was the first talk I'd ever given to a lay audience. OK, I've given talks to scientific audiences for decades. But, you know, I was nervous as hell because uh, I didn't know if everything I was going to say was going to be going right over their heads. I didn't know if what I had to say was going to be meaningful to them. I had never done it before. So um, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, does these mini medical schools for the public, you know, to try to bring the ivory tower science, you know, down to, you know, to the masses, you know, in, in meaningful bite-sized ways and you know on different subjects and this yeah. one was on nutrition and so i was asked by the head of the cme department you know if i would give a talk within that he didn't tell me what to talk about 
But I had realized, you know, just two years, three years earlier than that, about, you know, these very specific dangers of sugar. And up to that point, sugar had basically played sort of a non-contributory role to the concept of chronic disease. And I thought, you know, well, this is what I need to talk about because this is a big problem. And so I put this thing together, not having any notion about the fact that it was even being taped or vi videoed. You know, I thought I was just giving a talk to 200, you know, lay people in the San Francisco area and that was it and it was over. And because if I had known that it was going to be videoed, I'd have worn a better tie. <laughs> <laughs> I wore that, that, that silver tie. My mother had just given it to me and I thought it was ugly, but I thought I would at least honor her with. You, you know, made, your mom, like, like, made your mom proud, like a nice Jewish boy should. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I guess. Anyway, uh, you know, and that and that's the story. Uh, and all of a sudden people started watching this thing and I don't get it. I still don't get it. Every time I look at it, I go like, why in the world would anybody want to like slog through this? But I don't know. They do there. I, I think one of the reasons that that video has done so well is because it actually demonstrates mechanism. When you tell people to do something, they don't do it. When you tell people why, they still don't do it. Okay. When you tell, but when you actually demonstrate, well, here's what happens when you don't do it, then you finally have a chance for some compliance. And um, that's what we've been doing in our clinic for the, you know, for the last 20 years is basically actually sort of taking people through the science and making yeah. it clear what, what the ramifications of your action or, or, or inaction are. And it makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea that was your first presentation. I assumed that was, you know, the, this is your hundredth. And it certainly, you certainly didn't come across as um, uh, less than absolutely proficient, confident. Um, and I, you know, my day job, as you probably know, is community pharmacy. Yeah. And we see ourselves at that interaction between the patient, the drug, the doctor, the prescriber. So we spend our lives, if we're doing our jobs properly, explaining complex science to people in a way that's meaningful. So, you know, it, that way of being, that way of being a professional makes completely complete sense to me in terms of my, my day job. Now, like me, you were conventionally trained. And like me, you drank the Kool-Aid, if we can put it that way, and practiced in a, in a conventional way for a considerable amount of time and then I would say the first 20 years of my career I basically did what I learned and I did what I was told and guilty I've never written a mea culpa than myself about that um what changed because something happened that made you not not just divert by 10 percent, but it's a complete u-turn isn't it in, in the whole approach I wouldn't say complete U-turn. Um, you know, in the in metabolical, I sort of go through sort of my, my um, genesis, if you will. You know, I I was prepared for this. You know, chance favors the prepared mind. Louis Pasteur. I majored in nutritional biochemistry at MIT, an undergrad, and I learned very early on that you know different foodstuffs were metabolized in different ways and generated different biochemical and metabolic responses. So I had learned that, you know, very early on. Then I went to medical school 
and they beat it out of me and told me everything that I had learned prior was of absolutely no use in terms of clinical care patients. And I was in medical school to learn clinical care patients. And so they basically told me to cast all of that aside. Whenever I would bring something up in class, I would get from the uh, from the other medical students, mm. you know, like showing off or whatever, you know, I'm not trying to ask a question, but yeah. you know, anyway, so I just sort of got my head handed to me over the course of four years. And, you know, these were the gurus, this, you know, this is how you practice clinical medicine and, you know, prescription pads and procedures. And that's what you learn in medical school. And that's what it's about. Yeah. And so that's what I did. And I did that for a lot of years. And then I realized my patients, of course, weren't getting better. And then I also, um, you know, moved to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee uh, in 1995. And I'd always had this idea about what might be driving obesity. And we had these, this cadre of very unfortunate survivors of brain tumors you know, so St. Jude's a cancer hospital. We had all these kids who basically survived their brain tumor, had had surgery or radiation on their brain tumor, only to become massively obese. This is yeah. a form of obesity called hypothalamic obesity because yeah. it's damaged to the area of the brain that controls hormones called the hypothalamus. And the hormone leptin had just been discovered, okay, just the year before. Now, leptin is a hormone that tells your uh, brain how much fat is on board. Yeah. And it tells you whether or not you are energy sufficient or energy deficient. And so in that way, it basically either gets you to eat a lot or it stops you from eating. Yeah. And it also tells you whether you can burn rapidly or whether you have to conserve. Yeah. Okay? It's like a servo mechanism on your house, your thermostat on your house. All right. So when it goes too high, things shut off. Okay. When it goes too low, things turn back on again. And so this hormone leptin had just been discovered. And so I postulated, you know, years ago that because of the tumor or the radiation or whatever, or the surgery, these kids couldn't see their leptin. All right. And I was in charge of taking care of them. And these kids were 350, 400 pounds. And like, what am I going to do for them? Tell them to eat less, exercise more. You know, actually, George Bray, the father of obesity medicine in America back in 1975, had locked eight of these kids up on a metabolic ward at Harbor UCLA Medical Center, threw away the key and gave them 500 calories a day for a month. And they gained weight. <laughs> they, gained sense. weight. Yeah. they gained weight on 500 calories a day because these yeah. kids would rather store it than burn it. Yeah. Now, we knew that these kids released very, very high levels of the hormone insulin. Okay. And insulin, of course, is the diabetes hormone. You know it well. You know, you probably, you know, administer probably a good thousand prescriptions a day for insulin in your, you know, pharmacy yeah. practice. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's not really what insulin is. <laughs> insulin is the energy storage hormone. Yeah. Whatever you're not burning, you have to store and insulin is the way you store it. And so high insulin to me meant more storage. So I said, well, these kids, you know, their leptin is telling their, their lack of ability to see their leptin is telling their brain they're starving. 
So their vagus nerve is putting their beta cells into overdrive. And so they're releasing insulin like crazy in an attempt to try to store more energy to yeah. try to get their leptin levels up even higher, but the brain still can't see it because it's dead. Yeah. So what am I going to do? What, how am I going to help these kids? So I said, what if I blocked insulin? What if I got the beta cell to re reduce the amount of insulin released? And there's a drug that can do that. It was called octreotide, which I'm sure you also administer. Yep. Yep. And um, so we did a clinical trial, you know, open label, eight patients, you know, IRB approved, you know, all the bells and whistles. And lo and behold, these kids started losing weight. But even more remarkable than that was they started exercising spontaneously. One kid started, um, became a competitive swimmer. Two kids started lifting weights at home. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, running around collecting all the basketballs. You know, these were kids who sat on the couch, ate Doritos and slept. Yep. This was absolutely mind boggling that I could change their physical activity. I could change their quality of life by getting their insulin down. So we did a double blind placebo control trial and guess what? Same thing. And yep. we showed that the degree of insulin suppression correlated inversely with the degree of physical activity. So the more we suppress the insulin, the more physically active they were. Yeah. So what this showed us in a causational paradigm, proof positive paradigm was that the gluttony and sloth that we associate with obesity are not behaviors. They are biochemistry. Yeah, biochemistry drives the behavior, right? And I published a paper in 2006 saying that. So that started me on my journey. You asked, you know, how did I become yeah, an yeah. How did I start, you know, getting, you know, going off the rails as it were, you know? That, that was yeah. sort of the, the linchpin that's told me that all the things that I had learned back in college that they told me to forget were actually really what's going on. And really what I needed to do was forget what I learned in medical school. And since that time, I have sort of been a thorn in the side of the medical establishment and for good reason. And long may you remain so. <laughs> you and Asim. Um... And Tim yep. Noakes and, and so on and so forth. You know, it, it takes a lot for a doctor to get woke. Yeah. That, but, you know, that's what we are. We're a bunch of woke doctors, you know, that sort of now get the paradigm. You know, it took a while. It's hard, um, when, you, it's hard when you're not taught it. You know, it, you sort of have to find it yourself. All of us have a journey like that. I mean, everyone I've had on the podcast has a journey that ended up not where they started. I mean, the same for me. I was conventionally trained. You know, I thought statins were magic bullets with no side effects, eat a little, all of that stuff. Right. Um, until I discovered for myself, it just doesn't work. Right. Uh, exactly. It doesn't on work. An N, N equals one basis for myself. Well, and you see, look around at your patients and you think, well, I started out as a fresh-faced young professional. I was going to do all this good. And all I'm doing is pumping more medication into people. They don't feel better. I don't feel better. And no one's getting better, but the drug bill's going up. Right. Well, see, that's the, but that's the thing, Graham, is you just said it. Okay. Ends of one are not science. Yeah. Okay. And everyone is their own end of one. So 
there may be some patients that statin do, statins do work for. Indeed, yeah. you know, if you have familial hypercholesterolemia, God knows you do need a statin. Sure. Okay? And a low-fat diet and a lot of prayer too. Yeah. All right. But but that's your N of one. Okay. And familial hypercholesterolemia is only one in 500. Yeah. So for that patient, they need a statin. So I'm not telling you get rid of statins. I'm telling you, use the statin for the right patient. You 100%. know, okay. You, yeah. you, you know, fix the pathophysiology and then the medicine works. So I'm not anti-medicine, yeah. but what I've learned is that the diseases that we treat, these chronic metabolic diseases that currently account for 75% of all healthcare expenditures in the US and the UK and yep. many other um, developed countries around the world, okay? These eight diseases, and here they are, ready? Type two diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease. These eight diseases, which now account for three quarters of all the healthcare costs, yeah. they are not druggable. Yeah. Okay. You are pharmacist dispensing medications for all eight of those diseases, yet those diseases are not druggable. Yeah. What you're drugging are the symptoms of the disease. You are not reversing the disease. Not one of those diseases has a reversal with medication. Yep. Okay. So yes, high LDL. Statins treat high LDL. I don't argue that, but the high LDL is not the disease. The high LDL is the symptom of the disease. Okay. High blood glucose. Yes. Oral hypoglycemics and insulin treat the high blood glucose. I don't argue that. Okay, yeah. but the, or, the high blood glucose is not the disease, it's the symptom of the disease. Disease is still there, okay, and it never goes away, okay? In each case, we are treating the symptom, not the cause. And when you treat the symptom, nothing gets better. It's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. Might help the headache, ain't gonna do a damn thing for the brain tumor. And this sort of epiphany, this sort of no, notion that, yes, the diseases that are, you know, the ICD-11 codes are actually not the diseases was the reason why I had to write the book. Yeah. So what are the diseases? And this is where the longevity piece comes in. Okay. So in the book, I describe the eight subcellular pathologies that go on inside all cells in your body all the time and they are part of normal living you can't stop them what you can do is you can either speed them up or slow them down that's what you can do now when these eight subcellular pathways are working right you'll be 110 playing tennis you will have the ultimate in longevity you will not just have longevity but you will have health span yeah in other words you'll be you know, you, as, as they, as uh, was uh, said, uh, you, uh, die, you'll die young as late as possible. It, it's interesting because, you know, you called, you, you made a conflation to get metabolical of diabolical and metabolic. That's right. And, and my program is also a conflation of longevity and pro. And I spent so long thinking up the name 
because the whole point is, you know, to live longer in good health, or as you say, die young at a very old age, or however you want to put it. Right. I completely right. agree. Dying young as late as possible. Yeah. Right. Right. So that is, in fact, you brought me on to my next question, which is what you, I think you call it uh, Cell Biology 101, which is Chapter yep. 7. And right. you go on to describe these eight, eight processes. Um, right. And it's a, with great clarity. So would you be kind enough to sort of take us through that? Absolutely. So these eight, and I call them in the book, the hateful or the grateful eight, with apologies to Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. All right. So these are subcellular processes that always go on. Okay. You can't stop them. But it depends on how fast they're running. And there are things you can do to modulate those. All right. And here they are. Number one, glycation. So glycation is what causes hemoglobin A1C to form. So diabetics know all about hemoglobin A1C. And obviously, the higher the blood glucose, the higher the hemoglobin A1C. That's true. Yeah. Point is that that glycation process is, is you know, underlying the changes in diabetes that lead to chronic disease. What, they're do what it's doing is it's causing the proteins where this glucose is binding, non-enzymatic glycation. So a binding of glucose to a protein it's causing it to become less flexible. It's causing it to potentially not be able to bind other hormones, receptors, or uh, you know, activate kinases like they should. So it basically wears it out and becomes you know, yeah. sort of stiff and, and uh, inflexible. And that has its own metabolic uh, detriment. And every time that reaction occurs, number two occurs called oxidative stress. Now, so when that reaction occurs, that browning reaction, that's why you, know, um, uh, you get cataracts and wrinkles is glycation. Every time that reaction occurs, you release a reactive oxygen species, an oxygen radical, like a little hydrogen peroxide. Yeah. Now, hydrogen peroxide is good when you're trying to kill the bacteria on a wound on the outside of your body. It's really not good when you're generating it inside your cell because it'll kill your cell. So you have to quench the toxicity of the oxygen species, okay? And antioxidants do that. And the antioxidants are located in a part of the cell called the peroxisome. And if you have enough antioxidants and your peroxisomes are working well, then you, know, you can do that. You can quench those reactive oxygen species. But if, what if you're eating processed food and you're not getting enough antioxidants? Then those, then those um, uh, reactive oxygen species are going to run rampant and the peroxisome is not going to be able to do it. And what's going to happen is you're going to end up with something known as the unfolded protein response or endoplasmic reticulum stress. And it has been shown that this phenomenon is what leads to insulin resistance in the liver and insulin deficiency in the pancreas. Basically, that process is what leads to diabetes. Yeah. So you got to clear out the oxygen radicals. All right. Number three, mitochondrial dysfunction. So mitochondria where cells burn energy, but mitochondria can burn it well, or it can burn it poorly. And when it burns it well, you get lots of ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which are the chemical, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's chemical energy that your yeah. cell uses to power itself. Yeah. And if they're burning poorly, uh, then you're not going to get as much and you're going to get leak, leaky 
uh, uh, mitochondria that can make more reactive oxygen species. So you have to have, shall we say, fresh and able and agile and strong mitochondria. And there are a lot of things you can do to poison your mitochondria. And if your mitochondria are not working well, you're going to end up with chronic metabolic disease as well. Fatty acids, the type of fatty acids you take in, contribute to whether your mitochondria will work well or not. Yeah. And it turns out there is one particular toxin that poisons mitochondria directly. And it's called sugar. And fructose in particular? And fructose in particular. Glucose, the you know, the other molecule in sugar actually makes mitochondria work better. It activates an enzyme in the mitochondria called HADH, hydroxyacyl-CoA dehydrogenase, which actually increases mitochondrial ATP output. But fructose inhibits three, count them, three separate enzymes necessary for mitochondria to work normally. AMP kinase, which is sort of like the power switch for the mitochondria, uh, ACAD-L, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain, which is the enzyme that starts breaking up the fatty acids into its component two carbon fragments to make ketones. And finally, CPT1, carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, which is the regenerator of the shuttle that the mitochondria use to get uh, fatty acids into the mitochondria for burning in the first place. So fructose and therefore sugar ends up being a mitochondrial toxin. We always say that sugar is energy. No, it's not. It's energy if you burn it in a bomb calorimeter. It actually inhibits energy generation yeah. if you consume it. So this is a major um, sort of revelation for yeah. people is that sugar is actually a toxin. Okay, toxin to your mitochondria. Number four, insulin resistance. Now, everyone's heard of insulin resistance nowadays, but no one knows really what it means. Turns out it's true that when you are insulin resistant, your body doesn't work well. That's true. But different organs in your body can have different degrees of insulin resistance yeah. at any given time. And everyone thinks that obesity is the cause of insulin resistance. That turns out to be on its head. It's really insulin resistance that's the cause of obesity. Absolutely. And understanding that and understanding that um, subcutaneous or big butt fat actually contributes very little to insulin resistance, but liver fat and visceral fat are the primary drivers of insulin resistance, make people realize, oh, okay, it's not the fat on my behind that matters, it's the fat in my belly. It's not the fat I can see, it's not the fat on the scale that matters, it's the fat I can't see. Yeah, that yeah. matters. Right? And then and the I question think, is, where'd that come from? Exactly. And, and I think the point is that it's not the amount of fat, it's where, where the fat is. That's right. And actually, a, a tiny amount of fat in the liver and in the pancreas and wrapped around the viscera that you can't see, but doesn't weigh very much, is the, cl is the clue here. That's right. Exactly right. So insulin resistance, but you have to know why. And yeah. you know, not everybody has the same reason for their insulin resistance. So if you're really going to attack the problem, you have to understand where the problem's coming from. And so that's why you need personalized nutrition. Yeah. Number five, membrane instability. So, you know, imagine all of your cell membranes are like balloons. 
So imagine you blow up a balloon, all right, to its, you know, before, you know, right up to its breaking point, but it doesn't break, okay? So you're, you've got a blown up balloon. You try to use your finger to pop the balloon. Can't do it. Just comes right back, right? Now, if you use a pin, it'll pop, yeah. right? But your finger can't do it. Now, let that blown up balloon slowly deflate over, say, two to three weeks until it's finally like deflated, right? Because the air will escape you know, yeah. through the membrane. Now take that same balloon that had been blown up and blow it up again. Now use your finger. Now you'll pop it. Yeah. Okay. You have changed the membrane fluidity because of the stress on the membrane. Well, that happens to all your cells and especially your neurons. And so there are things you can do to try to support that membrane fluidity to make those neurons and cells in your body in general um, much healthier and be able to withstand that distensibility. And they're called omega-3 fatty acids. Yeah. That's what omega-3 fatty acids do. They help stabilize membranes and they help promote neurotransmission in, in a good way in the brain. Okay. Number six, inflammation. Now we've always known inflammation is bad for you. All right. I mean, it's good for you when you're trying to fight off an infection, yeah. but it's bad for you when you're not. Okay. And it's bad for you when you overdo your inflammation, like COVID-19, yeah. the cytokine response. That's what ultimately kills you. All right. So regulating your inflammatory response is absolutely essential. But if your inflammatory response is going on all the time, then that's really bad. All right. So how come everyone's now inflamed? And the answer is because it's coming from your gut. Yeah. Your gut is inflamed. Well, why is your gut inflamed? Well, because you're not feeding the bacteria in your gut. You're not feeding the microbiome. And so when you don't feed your bacteria, your bacteria feed on you. They actually strip the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells for food. And that denudes the intestinal epithelium and allows for stuff in the intestine that shouldn't be getting into your bloodstream to be able to get there. And that's called leaky gut. And so this phenomenon of leaky gut lets the cytokines, the polysaccharides, whole bacteria for that matter, in, and then that goes to your liver and causes liver in, uh, inflammation and that causes liver insulin resistance too. All right. Number seven, methylation. So your DNA can be methylated in certain places. And when it does, that means it's gonna change the uh, transcription of whatever that gene is, and likely, in most cases, decrease the amount of whatever it is that's being made. And so you're going to end up having cell dysfunction because yeah. you've methylated a place you shouldn't have. Well, that's what folate and B12 are for, is to sort of limit that degree of methylation, all right? And you know, B12 is in relatively short supply unless you take B12 shots. Yeah. yeah. And finally, number eight, my favorite, autophagy. So autophagy is self-eating, autophagy. Okay. Yeah. What it is, is it's clearing the garbage. All right. So your cell makes garbage, just like you do. All right. So let's take your house. All right. And, you know, the garbage men come and pick up, you know, your garbage every week. But what if they go on strike? Well, the first week, eh, not much. Second week, it's going to start to smell. Third week, you might get some, uh, you know, 
unwelcome visitors in the form a few, of a few rats. Yeah. And by the fourth <laughs> week, the rats start coming. By the fifth week, you know, your your um, uh, your uh, drains are going to be starting to clog. Okay. By the sixth week, you're going to have to move out of your friggin' house. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's a buildup. All right. But you know, the bottom line is you got to take the garbage out. All right. They got to come collect the garbage. Well, autophagy is garbage night for the cell. All right. Every cell in your body makes garbage, protein aggregates, lipid peroxidation products, defective mitochondria. They have to be cleared out. You, otherwise you're building on landfill. All right. Yeah. So, all right. You want these, your cells to be as streamlined as possible. They got to clear the garbage. And that's a process called autophagy. And it turns out there are certain things that can inhibit autophagy. And all the things that inhibit autophagy also contribute to chronic metabolic disease. So, and by the way, that's why you sleep. That's garbage night for the brain. Absolutely. Yep. So that's what's happening while you're sleeping is all the junk is actually being removed because the pressure in your head has gone down while you sleep. And that allows for these um, openings between the brain and the um, and the coverings of the brain, the meninges, to open up, and they're called glymphatics, and they yeah. allow for cerebrospinal fluid to wash over them and basically rinse your brain every day to get the junk out. Yeah. So these are the eight pathologies that are going on in your cells. You can't stop them. The only way to stop them is to be dead. <laughs> yeah. But <clears throat> those eight pathologies are what ultimately determine how long you're going to live and how well. And it turns out when you actually look at the molecular mechanisms of each of these eight, and I have, and I lay it out in the book, not one of them is druggable. Yeah. They're all foodable. Which is why I call myself the pharmacist that gave up drugs. Right. Well, because that's the conclusion I reached. Yeah. So that's, so, so, you know, it, it works at every level, but except of course for the food industry. Yep. And so, you know, teaching people what the real story is, is part of my job. So I'm gonna pose a question to you, Graham. And I've been posing this question around a little bit now. So I'm gonna see how, you, you, how it lands on you. Yep. Is ultra processed food, food? Well, I, I, um, I've read the book and I've seen the video. So I, I you know, I, hands up, I know the answer. And, and I completely agree with you. So you, you've kind of preempted another question. Um, but let me answer it. It's calories. It sure oh. as hell is calories. As oh. you know, if you, if you put it in a bomb ca cal calorimeter and burn it, you'll get energy out. Yeah, that's true. And, and this is where I think we've got it food. It doesn't make it food. So. Food. And I think this is what is such fundamental importance. And this is where the whole myth around calories, I was going to ask you why isn't a calorie, a calorie, but we've kind of come to that by, you know, a different, different route. Yeah. So stuff that contains energy, but which is also a poison, which is what I think ultra processed food is, That's right. by your definition, and by my understanding, it, it's not food, it's empty so, calories. Um, it's devoid of nutrition. Uh, it won't ever make you satiated because right. of the lack of micronutrients. So if you think that food just equals calories, 
by that definition, it's food, but by any other definition, it's not. Well, so you, in fact, Graham, we have to define the word food. Yeah. So let's do that. So if you go to Webster's and you look up food, it says substrate used for either growth or burning of the organism. I'm okay with that definition. Yep. That's growth or burning. Okay. So let's take burning first. I just showed you how fructose, that sweet molecule in sugar, inhibits burning. It inhibits mitochondrial function by inhibiting three separate enzymes. So even though it's calories, if you stick it in a bomb calorimeter, you get four yep. calories per gram. It's actually inhibiting your uh, mitochondrial ATP generation. Therefore, it is inhibiting burning, right? And Kevin Hall at NIH showed that if you give people unprocessed food versus ultra-processed food, exact same number of calories, exact same uh, composition at every level, but one's ultra-processed, one's unprocessed. Turns out the ultra-processed food will make you gain weight, whereas the unprocessed food will make you lose weight. Yeah. Okay. So clearly something's happening in burning. And it's not that it's clearly not the calories. And it's not the calories. Yeah. All right. So that's so. So in fact, the burning part is not met. The criteria are not met. Yeah. Now let's take growth. So my colleague, Dr. Efrat Monsenigo Ornan, who is the head of nutrition at Hebrew University, Jerusalem, just published a paper in Bone Research showing that ultra-processed food actually inhibits growth. Yeah. It inhibits skeletal growth, it inhibits cortical bone formation very clearly, and ultimately leads to stunting of growth. In fact, a paper just came out showing that the Dutch, who are the tallest people in the world, yeah. this generation of Dutch are shorter than the previous generation. How is that? Yep. All right. Where'd that come from? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Maybe it's because what they're eating. All it's, right. it's so yeah. obvious when you start to unpack all this. It, I mean, this is what I've discovered, which is I learned all the science, right? Ph pharmacy is very, very scientific. It's nothing like as clinical as medicine, but it's very scientific. So we learn, you know, everything from the Krebs cycle to, you know, uh, electron transport chains. And um, we learn this fundamental science. Right. And then you stop uh, using it. And then I, what I don't understand is how all of these professions, pharmacy, dentistry, optometry, medicine, nursing, we learn, we may learn more of the science. Generally, um, medics learn more of the clinical aspects, but we all have a kind of collective understanding. And yet we end up in this bywater of that makes no sense. And when you go back to the science, it's so freaking obvious. Well, you know, this is what cognitive dissonance is about. Yeah. You know, you're, you know one thing and you're, then you hear another thing and it doesn't make any sense, all right? And I think all doctors are in this cognitive dissonance because they're taught this one thing in medical school, which I was taught too, you yeah. know? And then it doesn't work. And, you know, that's why, you know, we have this, you know, sort of blow up. Now, you, you've got cognitive dissonance in social media, but you've not, you know, but, but we've got cognitive dissonance in, in, in the medical profession, in, you know, in, doc, in doctors, dietitians, and dentists. And that's one of the reasons I wrote Metabolical is to basically explain the, why they've got the cognitive dissonance yeah. Yeah, and to take them to task about it, about fixing it. Yeah. 
Well, next time you take your profession to task, please take my profession to task as well, because we, we've got a role <laughs> in all of this and a, and a, and a degree of guilt um, well, in all of this as well. Well, I, I don't I don't take pharmacists to task, <laughs> but I take big pharma to task. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you've kind of touched on this. Uh, we've touched on why a calorie isn't a calorie, but another thing that I've heard you, certain things that you've said over time has really struck struck me. And another thing that you've said is that type 2 diabetes shouldn't be called type 2 diabetes, we should call it processed food disease. Indeed. Uh, and, okay. and of course, I, I completely agree, but explain that. Well, I mean, if you take a look at the data, I mean, you just look at the data. Ultimately, you know, the, the people think that type 2 diabetes is because you eat too much, except there are a whole bunch of people who are massively obese who don't have type two diabetes. And there are a whole bunch of people who are perfectly thin who have type two diabetes. So that's not working. I mean, that's not the, the you know, the determining factor. Yeah. What we've shown, what we've shown is that there are three fat depots, three subcutaneous or big butt fat, visceral or big belly fat, and finally, big liver fat. Yeah. Those are your three fat depots. Now, let's take the subcutaneous fat first. You have to gain about 10 kilos before your subcutaneous fat will make you sick, before you can start seeing metabolic dysfunction on the basis of subcutaneous fat. 10 kilos, 22 pounds. Yeah. Okay. Now, it's true, you can get sick from adding fat to your subcutaneous compartment. I don't argue that. Well, it takes 10 kilos. Why so much? And the answer is because the, vis the, the subcutaneous fat drains into the systemic circulation. It drains into the inferior vena cava, which means that any cytokines or any poisons, you know, any bad proteins that your fat cells make are going to be diluted by your entire blood volume. All right. So you have to have a whole lot of fat to get a high enough concentration to be able to affect other parts of your body, like, for instance, your liver or your brain. All right. Because you have six liters of distribution in terms of your blood volume yeah. and also another 40% of your weight in terms of the interstitial fluid. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta have a whole lot of fat in your sub Q compartment to get there. Now let's take the second compartment, visceral fat, belly, big belly fat. Yeah. Turns out you only need about two to three kilos of belly fat before you start seeing that. Now, why is the sub Q fat 10 kilos and the belly fat only two to three kilos? And the answer is because the belly fat drains into the portal vein, doesn't drain into the inferior vena cava. Anatomically, okay, this is what's called known as a portal system. Yeah. All right. Now, what is a portal system for your audience? Okay, it's where the blood goes through two organs to get back to the heart as opposed to one organ. Yeah. So normally, blood goes aorta, artery, organ, vein vena cava, heart. Yeah. In a portal system, it goes aorta, artery, organ one, vein one, organ two, vein two, 
vena cava heart. Okay, two organs. And there are only two places in the body where there's a portal system. One is hypothalamus and pituitary. And the reason is because the pituitary has to be able to see minute quantities of the hypothalamic releasing factors. And if they got um, diluted for the, through the entire blood volume, they could never see them. Yeah. So that's one portal system. And the other is pancreas liver. Yeah. So insulin drains into the portal vein to, because the liver is the primary target of insulin action. And visceral fat drains into the portal vein to affect the liver negatively. And so only a little visceral fat will cause your liver to become dysfunctional, two to three kilos, as opposed to 10 kilos. And then finally, there's number three, liver fat. And you only need about half a kilo of liver fat to be able to cause your liver to be dysfunctional yeah. because it's right there. It's causing your liver to be dysfunctional, you know, at you know, really minute quantities. Now, do you think you can see a half a kilo of liver fat on the scale? That's the point, isn't it? Absolutely. You can't. You can't see it. Yeah. All right. And that's why thin people are sick. Yeah. And they don't know why. Yeah. Because they're thin. Yeah. Because they're fat. They're fat in their liver. Yep. Okay. And of course, the famous ones are the alcoholics. But now we know that sugar makes liver fat just as well as alcohol does. In fact, my colleague Rick Johnson just published a paper that showed that alcohol actually damages the liver because it gets turned into, because it raises the fructose level in the liver. It's actually the fructose that's damaging the liver, not the alcohol. How about that? All right. Paper just yeah. came. So ultimately, what happens at the liver determines how sick you are. And sugar, because it's metabolized directly in the liver and gets turned into fat in the liver through this process called de novo lipogenesis, new fat making. Yeah. That's where the action is. The action's in the liver. And the goal is protect the liver. Protect the liver, feed the gut. So protect the liver from the onslaught of sugar, uh, branched chain amino acids, glyphosate, heavy metals and feed the gut and feed the gut what well feed gut the gut fiber because that's what it eats yeah fiber fiber is food for your bacteria it's not food for you yeah. okay so protect the liver feed the gut any food that does both is healthy any food that does neither is poison any food that does one or the other but not both is somewhere in the middle and the empiric data on any given food and its role in chronic disease actually fits that paradigm. And so that's what I present in the book, Metabolical, is how to think about food having nothing to do with calories because calories are a red herring. Yeah. No, be beautifully put. I, I mean, I, I, I love the way, I mean, it's, it's fairly, I've, I've read lots of books, right? Lots of this area and it's very rare that I, every time I read a book, I learn something. What was so stunning about your book was how you brought all these things together. And I kind of understood all of it, but the way that you bring it all together in a very holistic way, and you tell about the story of the metabolism and you tell the history of the whole thing, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's really um, it's a stunning book. Well, thank you. I, I absolutely loved it. <laughs> um, so 
we've kind of established that processed food isn't food and we've, we've established from a sort of molecular basis why it's it's not it's not really food right um and there's so much else in the book i mean we could be here for many many hours which which um <laughs> you certainly haven't got the time i'm quite sure so i've been i'm just going to pick out one or two specific things that that i think don't get asked or not one in particular was about baby food yeah because my my kids are now producing kids and so i'm starting to look at the baby food that i sell and scream in frustration indeed what's your take on baby food yeah, well, there's baby food and then there's baby poison. Um, that's what it comes down to. So how, you know, baby food is a relatively new invention. Yeah. The very first baby food that was commercially available was in the Netherlands in 1901. There was no baby food before 1901. That was the very first, you know, time that there was, you know, a baby food you could buy. How did people feed their babies before that? We had several hundred thousands of years of, you know, feeding babies and children before there was baby food. How'd yeah. they do it? Okay. There was no breakfast cereal. There was no, you know, uh, pureed, uh, you know, baby, you know, uh, stuff you, you know, squirt in the kid's mouth. Yeah. There was no, you know, here comes the choo-choo, you know, none of that. Um, so how did, how did we do it? And why did we all die? And the answer is we did what the birds did. The birds, the, the mother bird would pre-masticate pieces of food that she would find, and she would then drop it in the baby's mouth. And the baby would gum it to death. Now, we don't do that anymore. Well, one, you know, it's kind of semi-disgusting. And yeah. number two, you know, germs and whatever. Um, and number three, we're all worried that the baby's gonna choke. Garbage. The baby's yeah. not gonna choke. In fact, if you look at the number of choking cases, okay, before and after, it did not change. Okay. And I looked. So there it's not that we're choking. The baby food industry convinced us that we would choke. They created a disease that wasn't there, that yeah. their baby food was going to solve. And so what they did was they pureed it. And when they pureed it, they could put anything in it that they wanted when they put a lot of sugar in it, because then the baby would like it. Yeah. Right. So how many times do you have to introduce a savory food to an infant before they will accept it? Median of 13. Yeah. How many times do you have to introduce a sweet food to an infant before they will accept it? Well, I remember my, my uh, youngest son, Robert, the first time we gave him ice cream. Uh -huh. And the look on his face, first of all, he, you know, he, he licked it, it was cold, he went, Bleh. and then he went, hmm, and he was hooked. So the answer is once. <laughs> oh, Michael Pollan writes about this in, you know, uh, uh, the Botany of Desire, you know, the first time he gave his kid uh, uh, sugar, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, it's like the kid's eyes widen opening. You've been holding out on me <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. the world. Yeah. I'm going to devote my entire life to this. And he did. Yep. Um, 
you know, so this, this is a well-known, you know, well-worn phenomenon for all parents, you know, when they first give their kids sugar. Um, why kids love, why babies love sugar? I can't tell you why they do. They're, they, their taste receptors, uh, you know, are very prone to uh, uh, have a predilection for sugar, for sweet. And the point is that it's probably the single worst thing we can be doing for them. Yeah. In fact, the American Heart Association has now said that the amount of added sugar we should be giving to uh, uh, toddlers and infants, you know, below the age of two, is zero teaspoons. Zero. Yeah. I'm for that. I'm for that. Point is, that's not what the processed food, uh, baby food industry, is selling. Yeah. And it's not and just they say no added sugar on it, but they, you know, apple puree or whatever else. You know, and bottom line, there are a lot of things that double for that. And I not just the sugar, it's all the seed oils that are in there as well. So it's every type of poison. Well, and now there's heavy metals, you know, this, uh, yeah. here, the FDA, there's this big, you know, uh, uh, conglomeration around this uh, issue of heavy metals in, in baby food uh, that the FDA sort of gave a pass on and it's created several lawsuits here in the US. So this question of baby food is, you know, shall we say a hot potato right at the very moment, this very moment. And I think that, you know, what we've done to babies is why we have, you know, obese six-month-olds. Now, we also have obese newborns before yeah. they are even out. They're yeah. already obese. So, like, what's that about? They don't eat, except yeah. they did except, well, they didn't eat, you know, the baby food, but they, what they eat, they eat mother's food through yeah. the placenta. Yeah. And it was always said that sugar doesn't cross the placenta because the placenta doesn't have the GLUT5 transporter, mm. which is specific for fructose. That's true, it doesn't. It has the GLUT7, 9, and 11 transporters, which transport fructose just fine. Okay, it's just, they're just not exclusive. Yeah. So it turns out that fructose does cross the placenta, does get into the baby, and has very specific effects on placental function and liver uh, enzyme uh, development, and it's a developmental programming issue. And it basically tells the liver, make more fat now, and they keep doing it. So we actually get babies in trouble before they're even born by what mother consumed. Yeah. So there's a lot of problems. So if it's not just the baby food, I mean, it's what the mother eats before the mother, you know, when the mother's yeah. even pregnant. Well, if you're going to fix yeah. that, then you got to fix the whole, you know, okay. the whole thing, the, you know, the whole food system. So which brings me up, it's kind of, it's pretty much my last question. Um, it's one thing I learned from your book. I'd always understood that the, that the um, sugar, sugar industry had learned from the smoking industry playbook. Yep. And you, one, one well, thing that you told me, it's the other way around. The other way around. Which right. I, I never knew that. I never knew yeah. that until reading your book. So that's another well, thing. I didn't know it either. I yeah. didn't even know, I didn't know it either until my <coughs> colleagues here at UCSF, Kristen Carnes, Laura Schmidt, and Stan Glantz, uh, we call ourselves affectionately the Sugar Hill Gang, you know, <laughs> covered the, the treasure trove of documents from the Great Western Sugar Company, a company that went, uh, went defunct in the mid 1970s in Colorado. And they found the documents from this company that had been willed to various libraries around the state of Colorado and started piecing the information back together again and showing that basically the food, the sugar industry knew exactly what they were doing. And they have put their thumb on the scale in so many different ways.
I just talked with Kristen yesterday, and she's working on a project right now that shows that the um, that the sugar industry actually uh, changed the recommended daily allowances of all the vitamins to allow for processed food to basically, you know, be uh, be considered quote healthy unquote, you know, back in the 1940s. So there's a there's a long history of uh, in this food industry subterfuge. Yeah, uh, it's, it's absolutely disgraceful. It, you know, you. Um, so I, I don't know if you're going to agree with me about this one. I firmly believe that some of the best things that ever happened was seatbelts and the compulsory introduction of seatbelts and the way that the smoking industry has been increasingly demonized. And now we're seeing smoking rates come down from what, 80% to somewhere below 15%. Would, do you agree with me that the food industry should be regulated in the same way for the same reasons? Absolutely. So, um, you know, ultimately this is a cultural moment. All right. Now we have had four, count them four cultural tectonic shifts in the last 30 years. And you've just mentioned uh, one of them, okay? Bicycle helmets and seatbelts, smoking in public places, drunk driving, condoms and bathrooms, okay? 30 years ago, if a legislator stood up in, you know, state house or Congress or parliament or anywhere else on, on the planet, and it proposed legislation for any one of those four, that had gotten laughed right out of town. Nanny state, liberty interest, get out of my kitchen, get out of my bathroom, get out of my car. Okay, this is none of your business. Right? Today, they're all facts of life. Yeah. No one's belly aching about any of those. And if you pull out of your driveway and you don't have your seatbelt clicked, your kids will scream at you. Believe me, I've tried. Yeah. <laughs> all right, scream at you. So like, how'd that happen? And why did it take 30 years? Answer, we taught the children. The children grew up and they voted. And the naysayers are dead. That's why it takes 30 years. This is a generational shift. All four of these were generational shifts. They didn't happen immediately. Okay, it took a while but we teach the children and then the children adopt these practices. Now we're seeing this with food now, okay? The children will change things when they get older. The question is, will we have a planet by then? That's a yeah. question. You know, that's, a, that's a more existential question. Yeah. But ultimately this problem will take care of itself. We're about, I would say we're about eight to nine years into this 30 year cycle, okay? They're people are waking up. People are understanding this, you know, books like Metabolical and, you know, and other books, you know, that, that have come out, you know, to demonstrate what the problem really is. Okay. And we're starting to teach the children that, you know, you know, just because it says it's food, it doesn't mean it's food. And they're starting to understand, you know, and they're growing, you know, gardens in, in elementary schools. And, you know, we're actually teaching uh, fourth graders, 10 year olds, knife techniques so that they can actually implement the yeah. nutrition education that we're giving them so that when they go into the store and the mother takes them, you know, for, to, to, for produce shopping and the kid says, huh, there's an artichoke. Can we have that for dinner? And the mother yeah. says, I don't know how to make an artichoke. And the kid says, yeah, but I do. All right. So, you know, because the kid becomes the positive disruptive yeah. force in the house. 
you know, to basically get the parents to do the right thing. So we got to teach the kids how to do that. We're starting to do that. So I think this problem will ultimately get solved in the same way these other things did, because these are societal problems. These are not personal responsibility problems. These are public health issues. Okay. And ultimately the, the society determines it and we're, we're getting there. So I think that's um, a great note on which to end. What I've tried to do is I've not tried to cover the whole book because there's just too much in it. I mean, as I say, it's astonishing. You know, this is a life's work. It really is. The, the depth. Oh, it was and, definitely a core yeah, No, I, on, <laughs> honestly, Robert, um, I've read your other books, but this is just different level i think it's the completeness of the narrative and and you've packed so much in there um you know um I, not much i can, more i can add um is there well, any, are there any final thoughts or comments or takeaways that you'd like to leave us with well yeah you can't solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is that's what it comes down to right you have to work upstream of a problem to solve a problem and you have to know what the problem is so in the book First sentence of the book, there's a wasp in your attic. What do you do? Kill the wasp or find the wasp's nest? Okay, you have to work upstream of a problem to solve yeah. a problem. Working downstream of the problem only solves the result of the problem. And that's what we've been doing in medicine and pharmacy and yeah. you know, nutrition, et cetera, et cetera, for the last 50 years. We've been solving the result of the problem. Yeah. We haven't solved the problem. And ultimately, climate change is the same thing. We have to work upstream. And we're not doing that because working upstream is hard. Yeah. But that's what we have to do. People have to understand that in order to be able to generate enough political will to be able to fix the problem. And so that's what I would, you know, really, you know, sort of leave your audience with. You, you, have to, you have to understand the problem to fix it. And we don't. So listen, Robert, you've, you've been extremely generous with your time and articulate as ever. Um, and it only remains to me really to thank you so much for, for being with us today. And I hope at some point we can talk again. Absolutely. Hope in person next time. Well, I was hoping to come to the Metabolics uh, Conference in Israel because I, I think you, you were one of the speakers there. So perhaps we can meet there for the, at the next one. Perhaps, yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> I, I hope, you know, I mean, look, I, I have nothing would be, give me greater pleasure than to get on a plane and go to London right now. But, you know, uh, you know, unfortunately, we got this virus that we're not solving either. Yeah. Well, hopefully in the next, things will start to open up in the next year and we'll all be able to travel again. Hope so. All right, listen, you take care and thank you so much. Thank you, Graham. Appreciate it. All right, okay. Bye. Thank you for listening. And if you haven't already done so, look at the links below and you can follow Robert on social media. And if before you leave, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to our media channels. And that way you won't miss future episodes with people like Robert and our other amazing guests.